Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore how unconscious bias has influenced news coverage. Often, mainstream news coverage defaults to favor mainstream society, and it often fails to adequately tell the full stories of marginalized communities, including women and transgender people, people of color, and communities lower on the socioeconomic spectrum. My guest is Keith Woods, Chief Diversity Officer at NPR. Keith has been working for much of his career to bring these issues to light, help newsrooms face their inherent biases, and more fully cover and engage with communities that are less represented in news coverage. Welcome, Keith. Start with the concept that's actually near and dear to my heart with my students is, how do you cover something and allow the public to make their own determinations. I talk to my students about this all the time because they want to use the adjectives, they want to define it, and they want to make determinations, and I'm trying to teach them how to discuss the context while letting their audience draw the conclusions. So can you talk a little bit about how you approach, especially in in this recent time where there's much more incendiary language coming from our leaders and things like that, how, how you approach guiding people in that in that issue. The first principle always is to report the facts as fully as possible. I think that you can recognize the inadequacy of just reporting facts without context. I mean, that's where we have seen some of the biggest misinformation um, over the last couple of years. But I think if you begin with the notion that if I provide an audience with contextualized fact, that they will reach whatever the correct conclusions are about the information that they've been provided. Your tone and your um, and your biases are carried in a lot of ways into the content. Everything, you know, if you're in broadcast, everything from an inflection to uh, an expression can carry some of it. And in the, the the written word, you know, the adjectives and the verbs, it's sort of a piece of everything that you do. It isn't, it isn't a single utterance uh, that will reveal a bias. It could be the framing of the story itself and the decision to tell it or not that uh, reveals a bias. Where we have failed in our conversation, especially when we're talking to students about bias is in beginning with the notion that it is possible to be free of it uh, or to have journalism that's free of it. Uh, That everything is about mitigation uh, and minimizing in some form or the other because uh, the act of being human guarantees the existence of bias. So when we are trying to convey something that is powerful to people, the facts are often more powerful than the adjectives and the verbs if we allow the the uh, the facts to be the lead uh, in the work so i think that when we when we're thinking about these issues of bias we need to to step back and think about all of the ways that its existence in our work is harming the truth are harming the audience or the public in some kind of way. And that's where our passion and our, 
you know, our greatest focus needs to be. I agree. And tell me when, now bias can come in all forms, as you said, but for the sake of our conversation, where do you like to start or how do you like to define it to get everyone on the same page about discussing it? For these purposes, I would say it is the unchallenged point of view. And because you can't ever be rid of it, the replacement for bias is minimized bias, mitigated bias. There are things that may be objectively true. You know, you shouldn't kill people. You shouldn't lie. This universe of acceptable morals, for example, each of which has an exception to it, or two or five, right? Sometimes you have to kill. Sometimes you should lie. But that's kind of where we begin our discussion. And our pursuit is always to see the difference between those things that are uh, unassailably true and everything else, because in the everything else is the, um, is the possibility of bias. What are the things that are true about the coronavirus? It did, in fact, kill people. It does, in fact, disproportionately affect Black people, Latinos, Native Americans. I can go down the list of all of those things that are true. I don't have to sit around and, and equivocate on whether or not I report those facts. But when we get to the question of who's working as hard as they can to eradicate the virus or whether or not the um, pharmaceutical industry should or shouldn't have been engaged or the military should or shouldn't have been engaged the way that it's engaged, there's a level of bias that I walk into that conversation with that I need to report against or my bias wins and rules. And that's what I'm talking about. I don't imagine that I go into any of these discussions with a clean slate. And anybody who says that they do is more dangerous than your average journalist. But we do have a sort of a, a mainstream societal default where the mainstream feels like this is our neutrality or we've kind of led ourselves there. And I... I I feel that the conversation about recognizing bias and expanding who audiences are and what it means to, to communicate with your audiences is, I think more and more people are aware of that, largely because of a lot of the work you're doing and other people in in this space. How do you work with newsrooms on this? And and I want to give an example. I wrote an article for Pointer on objectivity and bias and, and mentioned the reporter at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. She uh, was pulled off protest coverage, uh, BLM protest coverage, after she pointed out that there was a photo um, of trash and vandalism wasn't actually from the protest, but it was from a Kenny Chesney concert, and that a colleague of her who posted something similar was not pulled off the coverage. And the way I interpreted that was that the colleague's action was seen as an aberration, whereas her action was seen as core to her being. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about how the, the challenges that, that reporters of color or women have faced in newsrooms as they try to combat the inherent biases that have kind of settled in there. The bias that, that you're describing here is always going to be the bias of the majority or the bias of the powerful. Those are the, uh, the people and institutions that create the narrative to start off with, which is why this idea of objectivity has come under such scrutiny and assault uh, more recently. It's because at some point people realize that in order to have an objective view of something, you have to have a beginning point, a standard, and then you 
begin asking the simple questions like who set the standard and things start to reveal themselves. So when you look at what happened in Pittsburgh, what happened when people who are gay and lesbian applied for uh, marriage certificates in the, uh, the pre-Supreme Court uh, ruling days in newsrooms, in each of these um, occasions and a, a thousand more, you have people who, who are in the majority or who are in power who will look at these other folks and, and see the bias that they likely would have because of who they are um, and assume their individual personal objectivity on the same topic. Uh, so for example, uh, when the, the journalists at the San Francisco Chronicle were forbidden to cover the handing out of marriage licenses in, at City Hall in San Francisco, because they had either expressed interest in or had in fact applied themselves to be married. The assumption was that because of their orientation and interest in the subject, they couldn't be fair and unbiased. Uh, and it assumes that a straight journalist going to cover the same event has no opinion whatsoever uh, on um, same-sex marriage, which is ridiculous on its face, but the same way that a white reporter tweeting something is seen as a journalist tweeting something and a black journalist tweeting something is seen as a black journalist tweeting something. That's the way these things happen, not because the person who makes that assumption is black, but because the person who makes that assumption is not. And until we are all able to see the immediate, clear lens through which we are seeing things, uh, we'll continue to have the, those sorts of ridiculous things happen in this pr the profession of journalism. Objectivity, when it comes to matters of personal safety and personal freedom, would have you believe that the person who um, objects to your existence needs to be talked to in the same way and with the same level of, of credibility as the person whose existence is being questioned because objectivity requires us to be dispassionate about these things, essentially uh, assigns the luxury of that dispassion to everybody equally when the person whose life may in fact be affected by it directly has a very different interest in it. And it, it isn't that the person whose life is not directly affected doesn't have an interest. It's just a different one. So I think that we have to be able to have a conversation about bias that finally strips away the illusion that anybody out there, no matter what they've done to mitigate their bias, is able to be uh, functionally unbiased. Everything about our bias, everything that we do about it is measured in what we do to counteract it. When you bring different voices into a newsroom, uh, such as a, a woman or uh, or whoever, or, or, or experiences, that's going to actually bring different story ideas to the table, right? Like women who face harassment are going to be able to, hey, this is an important story. Let's look at this. Let's cover this. Let's explore this. Um, or uh, people of color who come in engaging with society in ways that are sometimes discriminatory or they have different experiences than their white colleagues can 
point out the value of expanding the stories that are covered. You mentioned earlier the bias of not covering a story or the bias of framing. When you are working with newsrooms to help guide them in their coverage of, of diversity issues or issues of bias, how do you guide newsrooms that are trying to do better? Well, let's start with, with a, um, a sort of off-deadline notion. It is everybody's responsibility to continue to learn. When we wind up having this discussion, either because we're talking about deadline and sourcing or we're talking about um, a single journalist trying to cover, you know, major issues, we, we always begin with the, the, the limitations of time or, or human resource. And both of those will be with us as long as we're around in this business. Nothing stops you from learning more every day uh, and therefore being more equipped in the moment to surmount the limitations of your individual experience and background. So it is recognizing that you are constantly doing the work. If you don't understand why it's such a big issue in America that trans women are targeted or that black trans women are particularly targeted, the information is out there. You can get all that you need to know to understand it sufficiently to tell good stories you can get with a quick Google search. So the people who uh, on you know hit the deadline and then say, oh, I didn't know, I didn't know to reach out to that person or to take that angle and had done nothing in the hours before to learn something, you have to recognize that that's the first failure. So I don't think everything happens on the day of the reporting or the hour of the reporting. Similarly, when we're talking about sourcing, you know, I'm, I'm told all the time, well, it's, you know, what happens is that on deadline, we go to the same people we've always gone to, you know, the usual suspects kind of argument. But it occurred to me one day that we built the list of the usual suspects on deadline. We didn't just wake up one morning and there was a whole, you know, Rolodex full of names available to us. They, somebody built that. Uh, so we created this problem. Um, under the same conditions that we are trying to solve it. It is not easy to overcome all of the ignorance and blinders that have created the situation that we have. It's not easy to do that on deadline, but there is more possible with vigilance than we have allowed ourselves in this conversation. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with NPR's Chief Diversity Officer, Keith Woods. Here's a, a bias of mine. I think the death penalty is wrong, period. Uh, um, in, in spite of the fact that there are people I would advocate for being put to death, um, I believe it's wrong and therefore can't, in the end, support it. That's a bias that comes into um, play anytime I'm about to have a conversation about the subject or about a story about the subject. Uh, so if I'm reporting against my biases, I am making sure that I am talking to reasonable people who see things differently than I do. Um, and whatever the subject of that story, whether it is a, an impending case or legislative decision to do away with it or to reinstate it, uh, I am talking to the people who have the counterpoint of view. Where American journalism has been getting it wrong so often is, uh, is when they simply think that the opposite point of view is all you need. 
uh, you will remember that I said thoughtful <laughs> somewhere in there. Reasonable, yeah. <laughs> Reasonable. That I'm, I'm talking to people who have a basis for the point of view that they have that extends beyond their opinion. And then I will report against that. And if in the end, my judgment based on all that I've taken in points me toward one framing for that story, then I am confident in my ability to defend the choices that I made because I have to be as thoughtful as the person I'm interviewing in this case. I heard a remarkable interview years ago about the death penalty on Vermont Public Radio in which they had a, an advocate for the death penalty and an, an opponent. And the two men in this case argued the other's position. The host asked them to do it. Just tell me what of their position you understand and demonstrate to me that you understand it by arguing it. Once I heard that happen in the conversation, both men had more credibility to me as I listened to them, because I know at that point that they understand the position that they're opposing, and I can listen to it with, with that understanding. We don't see much of that at all in our reporting. Uh, and so you wind up with uh, either these false equivalencies and these false dichotomies in the discussion, or um, people who just don't bother at all to hear from people who, who take a different point of view. To run back to the sources topic for a second, you're right, we did build up that Rolodex very deliberately or maybe not as deliberately as we should, and that we can do the work before the crisis to bring those people into the fold. We climb uphill on this, uh, on this particular front all the time. And we created at NPR seven years ago now what is called the Source of the Week database it is sources.npr.org, and it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 people of color with expertise uh, on any number of topics. And, uh, and we created it because journalists were saying, on deadline, I can't find people. What you would find on that database is the names, photographs, email addresses, telephone numbers, Twitter handles, biographies any other contact structure you could come up with in the moment, plus a sound cloud or some uh, link so that a radio journalist could hear how the person sounds and decide whether they will sound good on the radio. All of the excuses, all of the reasons why you might not have that person on the air taken care of in the structure that we create. And yet when you look at our sourcing at NPR, uh, we are still under, including Latinos, for example, substantially. We have gotten better on bringing in female sources since we started looking at that seven years ago. We are still corralling our people of color in stories that are about race and racism uh, and underrepresenting them in the ordinary journalism, the ordinary stories everywhere else. There is this matrix of, uh, of reasons that we look and sound as we do. And it begins with who we are, obviously, and who the journalists are, because when we track our sourcing, we learn that 
If you are white, 75% of your sources will be. And if you're a person of color, some much larger percentage of people who are like you will appear in your source list than in anybody else's. Those things are true. But also what we choose to cover and not determines who gets included. And then there are all of these unconscious and maybe even conscious decisions that we're making every day about who we value and how we value them, uh, who has expertise and who doesn't, that is uh, influencing the sources. And we continue to tell our people annually now and soon daily um, who's on our air and who's not and how they're showing up so that the awareness stays high. Um, and the assumption is that good people, good journalists, with a true intention to be inclusive will be if we can uh, keep the attention focused on it. I appreciate that. Being intentional and deliberate and naming um, and then being transparent about it can, you're right, help people see it. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, communities. How can we in newsrooms communicate better with communities that we have uh, decided are outgroups? How can we make sure that we are more inclusive of everybody? I said part of it may be structural uh, and you have to examine, you have to step back and say, how, what have we created here as an organization that is contributing to the problem? And you have to dismantle those things. You, you, have, you can't build bypasses uh, forever. At some point you have to take it apart. If your beach structure favors people by, by socioeconomic class or they favor people by education level or they favor people by race or ethnicity, whatever, and all of these things obviously have uh, intersections, uh, then you have to change your beach structure. You can't keep trying to uh, wedge um, a handful of people of color into a beach structure that is going to deliver you white people over and over again. So part of this is stepping back and examining who you're covering and how you're covering them on a regular basis uh, so that you, you see the patterns and the structures and you can go after them. When you're talking about out communities, you have to ask yourself why it is that they're out and why are the in communities in? That will help you to see the logic behind the decision-making or illogic, if, it, if, it, if that's the case, uh, behind the decision-making, so that when you make changes, it's not just, oh, well, we, don't, we undercover Black people, so we're now going to go to that community and, and talk to them. I ask people all the time, why weren't you covering them before if the, the compact that we make with our audience is that we are giving them enough information to make a good decision in democracy, but we are not talking to those people. Uh, something's broken about the way we're doing things and we have to examine it and fix it. And then uh, when you finally get around to determining that you want to sort of take on a geographic uh, community or a community of thought or a community of, of race or ethnicity, however you're defining it, when you're ready to, to make that move, you need the long game before you start the short game. You need to know how you're going to sustain what you're about to do because you need to recognize you're not the first person who had this idea. And for people in a community, especially in a racial or geographic community, you won't be the first one that comes and says, this is a new beginning. 
Native Americans on reservations across this country have seen this particular movie a thousand times. Black communities have seen this movie a thousand times. And the journalist comes in, the new journalist, the, um, the motivated journalist, and says, yeah, I understand that that was some bad stuff, but this is going to be different. I'm me. I'm not them. Uh, and we try to start over again. The fact of the matter is that in a lot of these communities, uh, I don't know if it's still the same way. I start wondering maybe if it is. Uh, but in a lot of these communities, their self-interest directs them to try again and try again and try again with journalists. Because if you get it right, finally, things will improve here. If you get it right, finally, you stop misrepresenting us and telling a fuller and more complete story of us. So I have to give you another shot because it's in my self-interest to do this until the day, and maybe we are there today, when I decide it's no longer in my self-interest. You're, you're hopeless and there's got to be another way for me to achieve this. That is our challenge journalistically. So what's the long game? How are you going to sustain this from the day, the first day that you send a reporter out there until a year or 16 or 18 months or two years from now? How are you going to maintain this so that by the time we get two years in, you are finally starting to get to the depth of the storytelling that represents this place correctly. Because uh, you won't get there in a month or in the, the three months that you dedicate the reporter to until you decide to put them on something else. I think we owe that to the communities. We owe that to the people uh, who are reading and, and listening and watching our journalism to give them the fullest articulation of the truth. You could look at the reckoning over the summer a lot of different ways. And any number of them will be right individually or in concert with one another. But there is also a thread that runs through it all. That if the scales fell off my eyes at the end of May or in the middle of July, because of the volume of journalism that was being done about the killing of black men in this country, if that in fact was an epiphany for me, uh, then it is also evidence of how badly you've been telling that story all along, how uh, marginalized that story has been all along, how off the front page it was all along. That's something in there. Uh, maybe, maybe it is too late or something. Maybe it's beyond time. Maybe these communities have, had, have finally had enough. And I'm wondering if we can just expand on that a little bit about what you mean by that. One of the things that happened in Ferguson 2014 is that you, you had this moment somewhere in the middle of the protest there where the established, long ex existing Black leadership met the young people. <laughs> and you had the people over here who are saying that the right way to go about doing this is peaceful protest, kind of borrowing the, the, the themes of the civil rights movement. And you got the young people over here saying, hey, that didn't work. And it was a very fascinating thing, and especially as somebody who now has a little bit of gray in his hair, maybe a lot of gray <laughs> in his hair. Um, I used to be able to say a little bit. <laughs> you know, that was a moment for me because, um, you know, you realize, well, that was a long time ago. The point that people are making is, well, whatever that thing was that we believed that we thought would actually work clearly didn't move aside. Let us try something else. There is no doubting today that the protest and the threat of violence and the existence of it 
over this summer is responsible for so much of the change that has followed in every area of society, including in journalism. So this notion that if we are just kind to the journalists and we just, um, again, let them in, show them around, introduce them to people that this time it'll be different. The notion that that is of any consequence at all must be coming into question by people in communities across this country. Uh, and we have to confront the possibility that that's so. And like when we're told to get lost by the police department, we have to go back and keep trying. When we're told to get lost on the reservation, we have to keep going back because ultimately we owe it to everybody, including the people who are avoiding us to tell that story. Uh, so I think that that's, um, that's an essential piece of our understanding about where the future lies. I think journalism today, even in its current tattered state, remains um, one of the truest um, supporters of democracy that there is. And I think that that's really important but once again, it is also one of the last remaining reliable sources of justice in the country. Thank you to my guest, Keith Woods, Chief Diversity Officer at NPR. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.